That's a picture by the Italian painter Caravaggio, the inspiration of St. Matthew, and there's the angel whispering. But could anybody have imagined these were the words that the angel whispered into Matthew's ear? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Isaiah. Isaiah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to, Be to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. How'd I do? Uh, not bad. <laughs> the secret of reading a genealogy is confidence. You pretend you really know how to pronounce all those names, and you, most people don't even notice if you mispronounce it. Well, sisters and brothers, it's here. We're entering the season officially called the Christmas Rush. <laughs> Only 17 more shopping days till Christmas. Don't you hate that expression? When I grew up in Seattle, the Christmas rush used to begin the day after American Thanksgiving in late November, but now it seems that the decorations start hitting the stores as soon as they take down the Halloween paraphernalia. And even though we have the same number of days to get ready for Christmas as our parents and our grandparents did, it still feels like a rush. Somebody once put it to me like this, sometimes I feel tired before I even begin. And beloved, I think we Christians have our own particular version of the Christmas rush. Sometimes it seems like we're in such a rush to get Jesus born, we move at breakneck speed straight to Bethlehem, 
But the purpose of Advent, these four weeks before Christmas, is to slow us down, to help us anticipate the coming of Christ, to take our time getting to the manger. Advent is a time of preparation. And this morning, I'd like to suggest that the beginning of Matthew's gospel, of all places, can help us do that. I want to help us avoid the Christmas rush by going back to the beginning of the gospel and taking a look at the names that makes up Jesus' family tree. Now, you know what the word genealogy means, don't you? It's literally the study of one's family. It's looking back on the the descent of a person or a family by investigating who their ancestors are. And that's what we have here in Matthew. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that a genealogy can make for some pretty slow reading when it comes to reading the Bible. Those genealogies, if we're honest, are parts of the Bible we tend to skip or skim through really quickly. Having said that, I know there are many people who are interested in their own family trees today, their, their origins, and I don't just mean the Mormons, genealogies are interesting because they take us back to our roots to, to understand who we are, like where we've come from and the influences that have shaped us. So a genealogy is about a person's roots. And Matthew's genealogy presents us with the roots of Jesus. And one of the first things you astute Bible scholars should observe is that this list differs from Dr. Luke's in chapter 3 of his gospel. Matthew begins his list with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, but Luke traces the line in reverse order and goes all the way back to Adam, showing Jesus' relationship to the whole human race. The reason for this, I think, is that Matthew, which is primarily written for Jewish Christians, wants to present Jesus as the fulfillment of all the promises God has made to his chosen covenant people. In verse 1, Jesus is described as a true son of Abraham, and thus the ideal Israelite in the lineage of David. Of course, from the time of the Babylonian exile on, the monarchy was destroyed. No heir of David was sitting on the throne. But now, Matthew is arguing, a descendant of David, Jesus the Messiah, has come as a rightful heir to claim his throne. Now, the second thing you astute Bible scholars will notice is that there are a few names missing. Not many, just a few. It means that in some sense, this genealogy is is biologically incomplete. But let me assure you, this was no accident or mistake on Matthew's part. The genealogy that Matthew gives us here is in three chunks, three chunks of 14 names each. In order to make it all add up, he leaves four names out of the second section that are elsewhere recorded in the Old Testament. But when Matthew does that, he isn't intending to falsify the information, but to simplify it. 
Donald Carson, a noted New Testament scholar, has commented that the Greek verb used in all these verses we've just read doesn't necessarily indicate literal paternity. It means the ancestor of. So, so these gaps shouldn't surprise us because the purpose of Matthew's historical genealogy is unabashedly theological. He's listing people who are instrumental in perpetuating God's promise. So it's not simply an exhaustive biological line that's being traced here. No, it's, it's a line of faith that's being mapped out. As Michael Green puts it in his commentary on Matthew, this genealogy is, intended to be, uh, is not intended to be comprehensive, but selective. It's designed, in fact, to make three names stand out, Abraham, David, and Jesus. The high point in the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in the Old Testament is undoubtedly King David. And the climax of this genealogy is great David's greater son, Jesus. The whole thing, says Michael, is arranged with consummate artistry and care for easy memorization in an age when few could read and fewer still possessed books. So see, these New Testament scholars are telling us that Matthew is not trying to pull a fast one on us. It's that Matthew's list, with its three chunks of 14 generations, makes for a smoother, more memorable chronology. And perhaps more importantly, by doing this, Matthew is letting history preach the gospel. Matthew is deliberately showing us that all of Hebrew history, from the high watermark of King David to the low point of exile to Babylon, all of these point to Christ. David the king represented Judah's great hope for the world. But here is the genealogy pointing towards Jesus, David's descendant. The exile in Babylon represented Israel's catastrophe, her worst moment, her hopes frustrated, the royal line ceased. And here's a genealogy pointing forward to Jesus the Messiah in whom the fortunes of Israel will be restored and the promises finally realized. David Augsburger, a Mennonite theologian, tells the story of meeting a young Hindu man who came to faith in Jesus by reading the very verses we read this morning. Can you believe that? Converted from Matthew 1, 1 to 17. And when asked what there was about the genealogy of Jesus which led to his conversion, the man stated that for the first time he'd found a religion which was rooted in history in contrast to the mythology of Hinduism and Buddhism. You see, friends, many religions believe that the deepest spiritual truths are found quite apart from the accidents of history, as Lessing would put it, in the correct understanding of, of eternal, universally valid principles and ideas. But no, the God of the Bible is a God of historical encounter. In the Bible, truth is more a matter of personal relationship grounded in a particular revelation in history with the living God. 
The Bible does not deal with our questions abstractly or theoretically. Persons know the truth when they meet God and are changed with vital relationship in him. And that's particularly true in the New Testament, where truth is fully and finally known in the historical person, Jesus. There was an incident in the life of Bishop Leslie Newbigin, the great missionary theologian to India, that illustrates this profound tension. When Newbigin told a Hindu holy man that he was prepared, Newbigin was, to stake his entire Christian faith on the essential reliability of the New Testament and its witness about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Newbegin says, this Hindu holy man was astonished. To him, Newbegin writes, it seemed axiomatic that such vital matters as religious truth could never be allowed to depend upon the accidents of history. If the truths which Jesus exemplified and taught are true, said this Hindu holy man, then they're true always, everywhere, whether or not a person named Jesus ever existed or not. But friends, here in his genealogy, Matthew is doing what Bishop Newbigin did. He is rooting the gospel of Christ in our space-time history, in the nitty-gritty of our world, rather than some abstract spiritual principle or some eternally valid proposition. That's the radically historical nature of our faith. That's why the incarnation is so important. History is important. It defines our identity. It shapes our preparation for the future. And because we are God's people, that means Israel's history in the Bible is our history. In fact, Israel's history tells us truly and deeply more about who we really are than any other culture we may claim to be a part of. So Matthew opens his gospel by showing that Jesus is part, indeed, the culmination of Israel's history. But there's another surprise here, not just the names that Matthew leaves out, but the names that he added. Did you catch that? Names of women. And that's surprising because Jewish genealogies were patriarchal. They usually didn't list the women, not counting the women, as one of the gospel writers once said. But lo and behold, here they are, the names of women, and furthermore, not just any women. You think if Matthew was going to sneak in a few female names into his genealogy, he'd pick the cream of the crop, you know, matriarch, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. In addition to naming the mother of our Lord, no, Matthew does something quite different. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife. Now, do you know who those women are? With these additions, Matthew, I think, is wanting the readers to raise an eyebrow and say, huh? <laughs> First, there's Tamar, a Canaanite woman who took the risky, morally questionable strategy of posing as a temple prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law Judah into keeping his promise to her. You can read about her in Genesis 38. And then there's Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? 
She was from Jericho, a pagan prostitute who assisted the spies when they were scouting out the land of Israel. She's mentioned in Hebrews 12 as an example of great faith, and you can read about her in Joshua 2. Then there's Ruth. Well, now Ruth is probably the least questionable of the four, but the thing she had going against her was she wasn't a Hebrew. She was a Moabitess. She was from Moab, a nation that was frequently in bitter opposition with God's people, the Jews. The Moabites were socially and spiritually a second-class race in the Hebrews' eyes. And finally, there's a fourth woman. Who was that? Matthew blushes to name her directly. She's simply the wife of Uriah. Uriah the Hittite, you remember the story. This is Bathsheba, a woman who, truth be told, was more the victim than the agent of the Old Testament's most scandalous story of seduction. You remember the story about her and King David back in 2 Samuel 11. Now, before we go any further, I've got to say, the villains in these stories are not the women. It's clear that the men, especially Judah and King David, stood guilty before God for what they did. But having said that, it's still shocking that women, these women, are even mentioned at all in a biblical chronology or genealogy. And what's most shocking of all is that they're all Gentiles, not Jews. It's almost as if Matthew is deliberately parading the family's secrets of Jesus' ancestry for everybody to see. How embarrassing. Talk about surprise. If we'd been writing this gospel, we probably wouldn't have chosen to put this stuff in. Given a choice, that's the very thing we'd avoid, the family secrets nobody talks about. And that brings up the hard thing about genealogies, our family secrets. William Willimon says in his commentary on this passage, we spend most of our adult lives trying to bury our family secrets, trying to detach ourselves from our stories, from our familial peculiarities. We try to grow up and put all that stuff behind us. We're embarrassed by the scandals in our family tree. Are you? <laughs> I am. When the Livingstons left Scotland, they settled in Mississippi and then in Texas. And in that bunch, there were slave owners in the Deep South before the American Civil War who perpetrated that, that practice of human slavery. I undoubtedly had members of my family, although none of them fessed up to it, but I'm sure it's true, who were members of the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War. I have a living relative that's been in prison off and on since he was the age of 14. I said goodbye to him when he was living with us, our cousin, and he set up a robbery in our own house and then said it was somebody else who did it. Wow. Not that I'm not proud of my family. <laughs> in many ways, I am. It's, it's, it's great to know our roots, something about the family tree, but sometimes our roots are embarrassing. We want to know our roots, but sometimes we're afraid of the dirt we're going to dig up in the process. And I think it's amazing that Matthew has no such fear. 
In fact, when you read over this list of names, you get the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament records until he found some of the most questionable ancestors Jesus had, and then he inserted them in. But why? Why would Matthew do that? Include these folk who are so culturally or morally objectionable. When you get right down to it, I think there's only one good reason. I think Matthew added those names, those names, in order to preach the gospel. To preach a gospel that says that God can overcome and forgive sin. To preach a gospel that says that God can use soiled but repentant people. To preach a gospel that says God can use anybody, even them, even us, for his great purposes in history. By listing these questionable characters, Matthew is not, hear me carefully, he's not trying to say that the wrongs they did were right, but it's a way of saying wrongs can be made right, that even our wrongs can be redeemed, that God's promise always prevails in surprising, even shocking ways. Matthew isn't afraid of the past. He faces it head on. You know, the, the thing is, we can't really get away from our past anyway, can we? Try as we might. Our past lives in us, and we can never escape ourselves. My parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, all the good things, all the bad things, they live on in me. We try to avoid the secrets or detach ourselves from our peculiarities, but they're there. Have you ever had the, well, you're too young, most of you, but oh, man, I have, had the experience of saying out loud the things that my mother and father said to me that I swore I'd never say to my kids, and they're coming now out of my mouth. From personal experience, that is a scary thing when there comes a point in your life when none of the things your kids say make sense to you any longer, and the things your mother and your father used to say to you begin to make sense. The sobering thing in all this, of course, is not just that the people in our family trees have weakness and deficiencies, but that we do too. And so often their shortcomings, their peculiarities, their blind spots are ours because we're human just like them, every one of us. <laughs> One of the best things about this genealogy in Matthew is that it establishes Jesus' real humanity. It may seem a shame to us to drag such people into the story of the incarnation of the Son of God, but Matthew's point is that God did not begin to stoop down into our sordid human story at Christmas. He was stooping down all the way through the Old Testament. Matthew's family tree shows us that God's promises are filled not as much by angels coming down out of the sky, nor by the saints we wish we were, but by people like our ancestors, by people like us. In his genealogy, Matthew's saying that Jesus embraces what we are so often trying to run away from. He's not afraid to tell it like it is. Matthew is not embarrassed by his people with their shortcomings and secrets and skeletons in their closets. He doesn't avoid them. He admits them. He acknowledges them. Matthew's genealogy is a way of saying that Jesus' people are like our people. They're like us. 
God comes to us as one of us. When God embraced humanity, he embraces all of it. God can redeem anyone, even the likes of our people, even us. Matthew's telling us that God is no respecter of persons. God can use people from every family and nation and race, yes, even women, even Gentiles, even sinners, to play a part in his kingdom. God can use you and me. Let me close. Do you remember, do you know the name Alex Haley? Years ago, he wrote the best-selling book called Roots. I was interested to learn that in Haley's office, he had an odd picture hanging on the wall. It's a picture of a turtle sitting up on top of a fence post. Just picture that, a turtle on top of the fence. Haley said that picture hangs there as a reminder to him of a lesson he learned a long time ago. Namely, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he had some help getting there. Anytime I start thinking, wow, isn't it marvelous all the things I've done, I look at that picture and I remember how this turtle, how I got up on that post. Sisters and brothers, do you get the point? The purpose of Matthew's genealogy is a lot like the purpose of that picture. It serves to remind us that in Christ, the impossible is possible. The turtle is up on the post. Look, there, there's Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Uriah's wife elevated to the status of God's people. Don't forget, says the genealogy, that if you get anywhere in life, if you accomplish anything, it's not because of your pedigree, it's not because of your own hard work, it's because you have gotten some help, some help from God. When it comes to God's story, our people are a part of it. We ourselves are a part of it because we have had help. The help of God's forgiveness, the help of God's amazing, empowering grace. So sisters and brothers, this year, would you like me try to avoid the Christmas rush? Let's slow down. Let's think about it. Let's realize that from the beginning of his gospel, Matthew's message is this, that by the grace of God, God's purposes prevail through people like us. What astonishing good news. Amen. Father, you know that for many people, this is a hard time of year. For some of my brothers and sisters, it's a time filled with painful memories. For others, it may the disappointments or hurts that we've experienced in our families of origin. And sometimes, Lord, we want to hide. But God, I pray that Matthew's family tree will help somebody today to know that you, Lord, came. You, Lord, came from a very human and embarrassingly human family, too. Perhaps you can help us to look at our own family tree in the way that Matthew looked at yours. So, Father, would you put our humanness into perspective? Would you help us to handle the families that you've put us in, especially at Christmas time? 
and thank you that we are part. We are a part of your forever family as we put our trust in Jesus. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.